Hey, as uh, Pastor Rick said earlier, welcome to Garden Oaks. We're so glad you are here today. If you are new with us, we are in a series called Teach Us to Pray. In this series, what we're doing is we're walking through this kind of model prayer that Jesus gave. Um, you may have heard it called the Lord's Prayer or the Our Father, but it's this prayer that Jesus came, gave because one day his disciples came up to him and the disciples said, hey Jesus, will you teach us how to pray? And so in response, Jesus gives us this model prayer. And so over the last few weeks and over the next few weeks, we're kind of just walking through this, seeing what we can learn about how we can each grow in our lives of prayer. And let me remind you real quick, on the final week of this series, we're going to try to just answer as many questions that you guys may have about prayer. So if you do have any questions about prayer on your bulletin, there's that little QR code. You can just scan that with the camera on your phone, submit a question anonymously. And then again, the final week of the series, we're going to try to tackle as many of those questions as we can. So, all right, let me ask you a question. I know it's still early and you hate the whole participation thing. I'm going to ask you to participate. How many of you are beach people? If you're a beach person, come on, lift your hand up, be proud. Okay, a lot of you. So, for me, um, I've never been a beach person. Like, to me, like, the salt water is just too sticky. A sand gets in, like, any and area crevice of your body. And then, like, the whole idea of standing in knee-deep water where you can't even see your feet, so you don't even have any idea, like, what things are surrounding you that could potentially eat you alive. Like, that just whole idea does not appeal to me. I've never been a beach person. And then this summer, um, Christy, my wife and I, we were fortunate to go with her sisters and their husbands to Turks and Caicos, all right? Like, Google it if you've never been or don't know anything about it. The beach we were staying on in Turks and Caicos, like, every year it is rated as the best beach in the entire world on TripAdvisor. It's unlike anything you've ever seen. The sand is, like, so soft and fine. The water is this, like perfectly crystal clear blue, like it looks like it's fake, it looks like it's artificial and not even real, it's just the most beautiful place in all of the world. And so going there, like I quickly realized, oh, like maybe I am a beach person, I've just been growing up going to like all the wrong beaches my entire life. Like if this is what a beach is, like beaches are pretty awesome, but it's just absolutely gorgeous. And then one day while we were there, we uh, rented some jet skis, and there was a local guy who kind of led us on this jet ski tour. So he took us all around the island. We, we went to this one beach on the island where there was literally no other people or buildings, like fine white sand, crystal clear blue water, and nothing. Not a single human being or building inside. It's just like the most glorious, majestic place you've ever been. And then we go and we're, we're jet skiing, you know, in the ocean, you know, there's all these lush green islands surrounding us. At one point as we're jet skiing, um, a pod of dolphins just kind of pop up and start swimming alongside of us. Like they were so close to us that you could literally reach out and touch these dolphins. And so as I'm sitting there, I remember just kind of taking in all of this beauty, all of this glory and thinking, man, this place is heaven on earth. Like, you can't be there. You can't be in the midst of all of that glory, of all of that beauty, and not say, man, this must be heaven on earth. Right? If you've ever been somewhere like that, that's a phrase that we will kind of routinely say or think. If you're at a place where it is just indescribably beautiful or indescribably glorious, we'll say, man, this place is like heaven on earth. And of course, if you've ever used that, we, we use that as a metaphor, right? We, we don't really mean that wherever we are is like literally heaven on earth. It's just a way to describe something that is extraordinarily glorious or extraordinarily beautiful. We don't actually mean that whatever we are enjoying is heaven on earth, but according to Jesus, maybe we should. 
Because what we're going to see in the Lord's Prayer today is that in our prayers, Jesus actually invites us to go to God in prayer, to ask God, to petition God that heaven and earth would be one. Jesus says we pray in a way where we say, God, would you work here and now in our midst? Would you work in our world in such a way that we look around and we genuinely say, wow, this is heaven on earth. God, would you work in a way where heaven and earth would be united as one? So Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 9, we've been kind of just walking through the Lord's Prayer. So I'll kind of retake it from the top, and then we'll pause where we're going to camp out today. Jesus is teaching, and he says this. He says, pray like this, our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. And here's where we're at today. May your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, before we... uh, talk about what we're actually asking God in this part of prayer. Let's talk about this idea of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And by the way, in Scripture, those um, two terms are used synonymously, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. Those are one and the same thing. Um, But what are we talking about when we say the kingdom of God? Because let's be honest, um, in our culture, we don't use that kind of language much, do we? Like for those of you who are new to church, maybe this is your first time ever in church or this is your first time in a while, by the way, welcome. But if you are new to church and kind of some churchy language, if you walked in today and you hear people saying, oh, hey, brother, you know, we're just doing this for the kingdom, you would be like, what are these people talking about? You would think like, are these people up to some military coup, like a kingdom? What is happening here? Like that's strange language. So what exactly are we talking about? And more importantly, what is Jesus talking about when he talks about the kingdom of God? And he says, God, may your kingdom come soon. So first of all, what is the kingdom of God? Let me try to give you a kind of simple definition. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. But the kingdom of God is the space in which everything exists in joyful submission to God's created order, and then I would even add, or God's will. The kingdom of God is the space and time in which everything that exists, it exists in joyful submission to God's created order and God's will. So it's the space where only God is worshiped as king, and his perfect righteousness and his perfect justice are upheld in unity. So, so, Let me show you this, and let's unpack this from Scripture. So Psalm chapter 89, verse 14, this is what it says. The psalmist writes, and they say, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. It's talking about God and His throne, so His kingdom, His rule, and His reign. And it says, righteousness and justice are the foundation of that throne. So righteousness and justice are the foundation of the kingdom of God. And so God's kingdom, it's the place where His righteousness, meaning His commands, are perfectly followed or perfectly upheld. And when that happens, that results in a perfect and in a just world. Now, in the Hebrew here, which is what Psalms is written in, that that word for justice, it's the Hebrew word mishpah. Let's unpack that real quick. Because in the Old Testament, the Hebrew language, when it says justice, what that is talking about is it's not only talking about retributive justice, it's also talking about restorative justice. And what that means is that when the Bible speaks of justice, that Hebrew word there, it not only means justice in the sense of punishment for the criminal or punishment for the evildoer, it it does mean that, but it also means restoration of the oppressed or the downtrodden. So both of those concepts and ideas are lumped in with this one Hebrew word, justice. Now, can we take a time out real quick? Because we need to kind of unpack something before we move on. I think we 
all realize, right, that we are living in the midst of a really weird cultural moment, aren't we? Like, I, I would even take a step further and say we are living in the midst of a really stupid cultural moment. And what I mean by that is that in our cultural moment, um, religion, or, or I'm sorry, politics have become a form of religion. And politics are important. Politics matter. I'm not saying they don't, or, so don't take it the wrong way. But politics have become a religion. Like, we, we identify who we are as how we relate to one political side or the other. It's become where everything we see in our culture, we interpret it through a political lens. And so, because of that, words get hijacked to mean all sorts of different things to different people, and it's hard to even use words to be on the same page of what we're talking about, right? You've experienced this, right? And so, I say that to say that what happens, what I know happens when I get up here and I say the word justice or especially if I were to add the word social in front of justice and say social justice, what happens with a lot of you is you start to get really squirmy. You start to get really uncomfortable, don't you? You're like, oh boy, where's he going with this? He better not go there or he better not go there because if he does, I'm checking out. And, and, and here's what I lovingly hope you realize. When I use the word justice, if you start to get really squirmy, the reason you get squirmy is because what you're doing is you are tending to interpret the Bible through your political lens instead of using the Bible to interpret what you see in the political realm, right? The filter you're interpreting God's Word through is like whatever your political leanings are when it should be the opposite. The Bible and God's Word should be the first truth that we stand upon, and then we interpret everything else through that biblical lens. That's the right way to approach it. So, so understand here, though, the Bible says that God's kingdom, it is a place that is marked by both righteousness and justice. And again, justice in Hebrew is not just punishment for the evildoer. It is also restoration for the oppressed. So, so let me prove that to you through Scripture. I'll read a few different passages. And they'll be on the screen. Proverbs 31, 8 and 9, this is what it says. And all this is straight from God's Word. Proverbs 31, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Ensure justice for those being crushed. Yes, speak up for the poor and helpless and see that they get justice. Another one, Jeremiah 22, 3. This is what the Lord says. Be fair-minded and just. Do what is right. Help those who have been robbed. Rescue them from their oppressors. Quit your evil deeds. Do not mistreat the foreigner, the orphans, and the widows. And stop murdering the innocent. Psalm 146, 7. He, God, gives justice to the oppressed and food to the hungry. The Lord frees the prisoner. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are weighed down. The Lord loves the godly. The Lord protects the foreigners among us. He cares for the orphans and widows, but He frustrates the plans of the wicked. And so all throughout Scripture, we see this idea that God's kingdom is the place where His righteousness is upheld, and when God's righteousness is perfectly upheld, that results in a perfect, just world. Now, if you're like, hey, that sounds great, that sounds awesome, but of course, that is some sort of unrealistic, utopian society that could never exist. If that's your thought, here's what the Bible actually shows us. The Bible actually shows us that in the beginning, when God created the world, that actually did exist. God created the world where His kingdom reigned and righteousness and justice were perfectly upheld. When God made the world, heaven and earth were one. There was no separation. There was no divide. There was no distinction between heaven and earth. 
He created this perfect garden paradise on earth where his kingdom reigned. And in that garden paradise, he placed the first human beings. There was peace. There was perfection. It was marked by God's righteousness and his justice. And then something happened. You can read about this in Genesis chapter 3. What happens is instead of submitting to God's rule and reign, instead of submitting to God's righteousness and allowing God to define good and evil, what happened is the first human beings, they said, no, we will come up with our own understanding of righteousness. We will define good and evil on our terms. We don't need to listen to God's definitions. We will define our own understandings of good and evil. And they rejected God, and as a result, they are kicked out of this garden paradise. They are kicked out of this heaven on earth space. And so when that happens, the kingdom of God and then earth, the kingdom of humans, are fractured. They're separated. They're divided. That happens in Genesis 3. And then we keep on reading in Genesis, and what you see as you keep on reading is that over time the earth becomes increasingly filled not with God's righteousness and his justice, but it becomes increasingly filled with evil and injustice. And over time, just in the first few books of the Bible, we see brother murdering brother. We see men using their physical strength to abuse women. We see the, the rich kicking down the poor to make themselves even more. We, we see all of this oppression and injustice and evil happening. But from the very beginning, from the time this happens, God makes a promise, and he promises that, that he will one day restore everything that has been broken because of sin, that he's going to fix all of this brokenness. So God makes that promise, and then you fast forward thousands of years. And then in the first century, outside of Jerusalem, there was this um, man who was a prophet named John the Baptist. He was a little weird. He was a little eccentric. He, like, dressed weird. He ate weird stuff. He was a weird guy. But he was a prophet out in the desert, and people would come to see him. And when people came to see him, John would continually proclaim the same thing just over and over and over again. He would say, hey, repent of your sin or turn away from your sin because the kingdom of God is near or the kingdom of God is coming soon. He's basically telling people, hey, get ready. It's, it's about to happen. It's coming. God's kingdom is returning. It's coming back. All this brokenness is going to be restored and fixed. So John proclaimed that message. And then in the middle of that, Jesus shows up on the scene. And when Jesus shows up on the scene and Jesus began his ministry, he made this incredibly revolutionary, bold claim. Jesus got up and he started saying, the kingdom of God is here. Now the kingdom of God has come with me. What Jesus was claiming that he was bringing the kingdom of God back to earth, that he came to restore everything that was broken because of the sin of mankind. That's what Jesus claimed he came to do. But how was Jesus going to do this? Because again, God promised that he was going to send somebody who would do this, who would bring back the kingdom of God, who would restore all this brokenness and all that. But, but here's the deal. The Jewish people living in Jesus' day had a misunderstanding of how this was going to happen. They assumed that when God sent somebody to, to bring the kingdom, they thought what that meant was a political kingdom or a military kingdom. They thought that when the Messiah came, what he would do is he would drive the big bad Romans out of their land, he would establish a new political nation state, and that new political nation state would be the kingdom of God. That's what everybody in Jesus' day assumed would happen when he says, hey, the kingdom of God is here now with me. That was their expectation. 
But that's not how Jesus would bring about the kingdom of God. Instead of bringing it by force and by military power, Jesus would bring the kingdom of God through self-sacrificial love on the cross where he submitted himself to the will of God his Father. So Matthew chapter 26, what's going on in that part of the story is Jesus, this is the night that he's going to be arrested and the night before he is ultimately going to go to the cross and be crucified for the payment of sin of all mankind. And Jesus knows that's coming. He knows exactly what is about to happen. He knows exactly everything he is about to endure. And so right before this, he goes and he spends some time in prayer with God the Father. Matthew 26, 39, this is what it says. It says, Jesus went up a little further and he bowed with his face to the ground praying, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. What he's saying, he's talking about how he knows he's about to go to the cross and he's saying, Father God, if there's any way for the redemption, for the restoration of mankind to happen apart from me going to the cross, God, let that happen. If there's any other way, make that happen. But then he says, yet, I want your will to be done, not mine. He prays, yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Notice the similarities in Jesus' prayer here in Matthew 26 and what he taught us in the Lord's Prayer. And the Lord's prayer says, God, may your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is on heaven. Right? That, that the first part of prayer is saying, God, this is not about me. This is not about getting what I want. It's about, God, your will being done. We pray, God, may your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And here in Matthew 26, Jesus prays, God, here's what I want. Here's what I'm asking for. And then he says, but God, not my will, but yours be done. And then, of course, we know Jesus obeyed the Father's will and went to the cross. And so it's through the self-sacrificial love of Jesus submitting to the will of the Father and going to lay his life down on the cross, that's how the kingdom of God ultimately came. That's how the kingdom was victorious. Now we fast forward to the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, and a lot of Revelation, um, it deals with some of like what's happened in the world, but then it also deals with what will happen in the future. And in the book of Revelation, there's this guy named John. He was a follower of Jesus. He is given this prophetic vision, if you will, of what will happen in the future, what it will look like when Jesus returns and he makes everything right and he restores heaven and earth finally once and for all again. And so let me read a couple things from Revelation. This is what Jesus, through his self-sacrificial love of going to the cross, this is what Jesus accomplished there on the cross. So Revelation 21, verse 1. John sees us. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the old heaven and old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. And I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people, right? What he's saying there is that all the way back in that perfect garden paradise in Genesis where heaven and earth were one, where God's home was among his people, Adam and Eve lived in perfect harmony in relationship with God, John sees that happening once again. That created design, that created order of how God intended the world to be, that is being restored once again, as heaven and earth are being reunited. He says, he, God, will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. And listen to this. He says, he will wipe every tear from their eye. There will be no more death 
or sorrow or crying or pain. All of these things are gone forever. So that that world that we talked about where God's righteousness is upheld and that results in perfect justice, that world that we think about, we say that's not possible, that's some utopian far-fetched vision. John says, no, 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 no. That's what Jesus accomplished on the cross. And when he returns, that's what it will be forever. And then one more passage from Revelation, Revelation chapter 7. I want us to see, I want us to notice what God's will is as it pertains to who will be in that kingdom, who God wants as part of that kingdom to live with him forever. Revelation 7 verse 9. John says, after this, I saw a vast crowd too great to count. So again, he's, he's getting this picture into heaven, into the kingdom of God. He says, a crowd too great to count. And listen to this. He says, from every nation and every tribe and every people and every language standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes and held palm branches in their hands and they were shouting with a great roar, salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. All right, so notice, what, what John sees here is that because of the self-sacrificial love of Jesus on the cross, what that leads to is the restoration of heaven and earth to this ultimate home where God's people can live with God in his kingdom forever and God's righteousness and his justice are perfectly upheld in this world with no sorrow, no pain, no tears, or no death. And in that kingdom are people from every nation, every tribe, every language that has ever existed. So that is God's will for the world. If we want to know what is God's will for the world, the restoration of heaven and earth, a kingdom where people of every nation, of every tribe, of every, na- of every language can live with God in that kingdom forever, that is His will for the world, and Jesus accomplished that through the cross. Now, what does this mean for our prayer life? Because again, going back to Matthew 6, Jesus says, when you pray, pray our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy, and then may your kingdom come soon, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So what does it mean for us to pray that, to pray that God's kingdom would come, that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven? Well, first of all, I think it means that, that we pray that God's righteousness, that God's justice would be upheld both in our individual lives and in the world around us. And it's to pray that God would bring salvation to people from every tribe, every nation, in every language. So we pray for those things. We petition God for those things to happen. But here's the kicker. I don't think this is a passive prayer. And what I mean by that is I don't think Jesus desires for us to only, you know, set our alarm, wake up a few minutes early in the morning, and then in the morning before we make breakfast or go to work, say, hey, God, would your kingdom come soon? Would your will be done on earth? Would you do these things? And then we say amen, and then we just go about our days minding our own business. I don't think that's Jesus's intention here. I think Jesus' desire is that we would pray this prayer and then we would go out into our world and we would live in a cross-centered, self-sacrificial way where every moment of every day we're asking, hey, how can I be part of bringing heaven down to earth? How can I actively participate in God's will being done here and now on earth as it is in heaven? 
And so understand, when, when we make sacrifices, when we live in a sacrificial way and we give of ourselves to serve other people in Jesus' name, what we are doing is not only serving other people in Jesus' name, what we are doing is we are bringing heaven down to earth. Right? When, we, when we sacrifice and give of our money to lift the hungry or the downtrodden in Jesus' name, what we are doing in that is we're actually bringing heaven down to earth. When we sacrifice to stand up and push back against true injustice in the world in Jesus' name, what we are doing is we are actually bringing heaven down to earth. And when we sacrifice to give or to go to take the gospel to the nations, to people, to tribes, to languages who have not yet heard the name of Jesus, when we sacrifice to do that, we are bringing heaven to earth. We are actively working to see God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so Jesus invites us to pray, God, bring your kingdom soon so that your will is done on earth as it is in heaven. He invites us to pray that, but that invitation compels us to act day by day and say, how can I participate in that work? How can I live in a cross-centered, self-sacrificial way where I'm actively trying to bring heaven down to earth? So I want to introduce you to uh, some friends of ours here at Garden Oaks who I believe are living in such a way where they are actively seeking to bring heaven down to earth. So I'm going to invite Sam and Jessica Nutter up this morning. We're going to hear a little bit from them. If Sam and Jessica come up, would you just give them a hand and welcome them to Garden Oaks this morning? Hey, thanks for being here, guys. Um, real quick, just for those who don't know you, would you just kind of take a moment, introduce yourself, tell us who you are, your names, your family, all that good stuff. Yep. Um, thank you for having us, everybody. I'm Sam, and we're the Nutters. Uh, we've got two little kids. <laughs> Somebody's excited. <laughs> All right. We've got uh, we've got one uh, two and a half year old and one ten ten months <laughs> ten month old. Hi. And so, so why are you guys here today? What do you do for work? Who do you work for? Yeah, so we work with Wycliffe Bible Translators. Um, we uh, serve in Papua New Guinea, which is um, north of Australia and east of Indonesia. Um, and, and Wycliffe translates Bibles. Um, one of my, my favorite, um, I, I, I love hearing about like this sermon um, is and the things that you you brought up are really important to us um, because, because of the Word of God. Um, one of my favorite quotes from the, the founder of our organization in, in 1942, he said, the Bible in the mother tongue is the greatest missionary. It never needs a furlough, and it's never considered a foreigner. And I think back to the times in my life when, um, when, when I needed God and, and every day, <laughs> but especially times when, when scripture comes to mind, um, such as God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of love, power, and a sound mind. And, and I have that. I have the word of God. I have the word of God in, in multiple different translations. Um, so is that when you say that you guys are with Wycliffe and yeah. you do Bible translations, is that what you're talking about? Like, think for us, we can, you know, we can go on to Amazon and order a Bible, and like you said, there's all these different translations, so is that what you're talking about, or when you say Bible translation, like, what in the world does that mean? Absolutely, yeah, so 
um, there's, there's different English Bible translations, lots of them, as we know. Um, but there's actually around 8,000 languages in the world, which uh, the, the first time I heard that, I was like, what? I mean, I, I, you know of uh, English, uh, Spanish, Italian, German, French, you know, those, those languages. But no, there's, there's actually 8,000 languages in the world. Um, there's some of those 8,000 that have a million people, and there's some that have 500. Um, and in, in all these languages, there's about, uh, there's about 1,200 or 12, 1,500 languages that have absolutely no Bible whatsoever. So when they open their Bible, it's blank. So they have, they have no access to God's Word. Um, and those are the languages that Wycliffe and, and, and us, that we're going in and it takes a huge team of people and translators to, to bring God's word to those people. And then beyond that, there's, there's even, um, it's, it's closer to one, well, it's between one and two billion people that don't have a full Bible. So there's also translation going on uh, for those languages. So I've got this list here um, of the languages just for demonstration purposes that these languages um, they have no Bible whatsoever. Um, yeah, if you could hold it, that'd be good. So I'll have, um, I'll have Pastor John read a couple of these, you know, and, and we're starting, it's tiny, tiny print, and we're starting in Africa, and it's got the, the continent, the country, the language, and then how many. So like this one in Algeria, um, Ch Chinoa, and there's 76,000 people in that language, and they have no Bible whatsoever, no scripture translated, and uh, work needs to begin in that area. So here, I'll have you read a couple. This is not going to go well. Uh, <laughs> reading is not my strong suit. All right, uh, let's go with uh, the uh, Mbwale. There's uh, 222,000 people um, All right. who speak that language. So that's still in Africa. Um, let me just pull a couple more here. Uh, we're still in Africa here. Uh, are we still in Africa over there? Uh, still in Africa. Okay. Still, still in Africa. Still in Africa. Still in Africa. All right, now we're in uh, Asia. Oh, oh, okay, okay. So maybe read another one. All right, um, so... Oh, these are in the Pacific here. Okay, so in the uh, Solomon Islands, there is, let's see, the Duke language, and there are 2,310 people who speak that. All right. Let's see. The, uh, oh, that's the Pacific. Talisi yeah. language, 12,500 people. Right. Yeah, we skipped over a little fast, but there's, there's a couple more there in Asia, you know, with like a million people um, that, that have no, no scripture access whatsoever. So, so just to understand, and so we can like make sure we understand what you're saying. So every single language on this list, you're saying that there's not a Bible that has been translated in that language. So even if somebody speaks this language, they want to read the Bible, they want to learn about God, they, they have no way to do that. That's correct. Yep. Okay. And so you guys, you said that you were working to translate Bibles. You're working with Wycliffe, but you're doing it, where'd you say? In, in Papua New Guinea. Okay. So, um, yeah. So actually, Jessica, if you could share a little bit about, um, about Papua New Guinea. Yeah, tell us, because like, yeah. I, I don't know, but most of us, but for me, like Papua New Guinea, it's like, okay, yeah, I heard about that in school maybe, but I couldn't point it out on a map. I have no idea what it's like. So yeah, just, what is Papua New Guinea? Yeah, so Papua New Guinea is an island in the Pacific. It's um, about the size of California. Um, it's really remote in their infrastructure. They don't have a lot of infrastructure. The roads are really bad and there's few of them. Um, 
Sam always says you can stand on one mountain and you can see a guy way in the distance on another mountain with a valley between them and it might take you days to reach them because the terrain is so rugged. Oh. Right, there's, so there's 800 languages in Papua New Guinea as well. Um, and so out of those 800 languages, it's, it's kind of cut into thirds really. So there's a, a close to a third that has uh, some scripture that we've been there for quite a while now. Um, we're approaching 70 years, I believe. Um, and, and there's another third that, um, that has no scripture whatsoever. And then there's a third that has uh, a third that has a full Bible because of the time that we've been there. Okay, so you said how many yeah. languages in, just in Papua New Guinea? Yeah, there's 800 different, over 800 different languages, and because of its small size, that actually makes Papua New Guinea one of the most diverse countries in the world. So, so here's, what's, here's what's crazy and blows my mind. Like one nation about the size of California, with over 800 languages, uh, a lot of those don't even have a Bible in their own language. So these people have no, no way to even read the gospel or read about what Jesus has done for them. So in Revelation there, when, when John sees that vision, right, that vision in the future, he looks into heaven, and in heaven he sees people of every nation, of every tribe, in every language. What that means is that if we believe the Bible is true, which here at Garnox we absolutely believe it's true, if that's true, there are going to be people of every single one of these 800 and something languages in heaven worshiping God in the future because of the work that they're doing. That, that's an incredible, incredible thing, right? Yes, thank you, Sarah. You can clap for that. And so what do you guys, like, actually do on the ground? So, okay, so you're, you're missionaries, if we want to use that language, in Papua New Guinea, but, like, what does your day-to-day -day look like in Papua New Guinea? What do you all actually do? Are you sitting there, like, with a Bible, like, translating <laughs> into another language? Like, what are you, how do you yeah. do this? Yeah, so here's the crazy thing. Um, I have no degree. I'm not a pastor. I'm not a Bible translator. I work in an, the auto shop department, and this last term I, I manage the auto shop department. Um, so what that means is that we support Bible translation. And in a way, um, we're all supporting God's work, as John was saying in, in, in his message. And, and God has invited us to bring his kingdom here. And that's, that's an opportunity that, uh, that we all have. And just the, in, in the line of support where we are, we're supporting Bible translation. But I'm working in an automotive shop. And just like any skill you have, you might be in IT or you might be an accountant. All of that work is, is also necessary for, uh, for Bible translation and lots of different kinds of mission. Um, and so because of the unique terrain in Papua New Guinea, which uh, helps people stay isolated and, and also is why there's so many different languages there, you could, a, a lot of these areas are only accessible by an airstrip or only accessible by a helicopter. And we have an aviation department that supports translation that way as well. So if the plane needs to land, well, there's an airstrip mower that has to keep the field maintained or, or the plane can't land. So if that airstrip mower breaks down, they send it back to us on the center in Ukurumpa, which is in Eastern Highlands province of Papua New Guinea, in case you didn't know, like we're not on the coast where there's nice snorkeling and all of that. Um, <laughs> but... They'll send, that, they'll send that mower up to us or a generator if they have, lap, they, ha, they, do, they have laptops and they have equipment and they need to keep um, running and they need power. And so 
they'll send a generator to us. Um, there's, there's, uh, some of them have four-wheelers and motorcycles, and um, they can send those back and forth to us, as well as all the other uh, support staff that work on center. A lot of them use um, four-wheelers and motorcycles. And then we have a four-wheel drive section uh, with you know, land cruisers and high ground clearance uh, vehicles that we maintain. We have a machine shop, we have a welding fabrication section and a fueling station. We have a off-road recovery uh, service for, our, for if, if anyone gets in a wreck uh, because the terrain is pretty crazy. Um, and, and that's how we support Bible translation is through uh, the work in the auto shop department. Yes, yeah, so I, I think that's amazing that at least for me growing up in church, like my idea, if you said, oh, what is a missionary? Like what they are doing, like is to be a missionary, you have to be really good at preaching or like starting a church or something like that. But, but here you are using your skills as a mechanic to get the gospel, to get God's word to all these people who, who haven't yet heard. And that's just a reminder for us that, that we can use whatever gifts, whatever skills God has given us to be part of his missions. That's awesome. So, man, the one thing I'd really love to hear from you guys, like what blows my mind is just, um, honestly, you guys inspire me and just the sacrifice that you guys make. And as we talk about the sacrifice of Jesus and living in this self-sacrificial way to bring the kingdom here, to make God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven, you know, you guys, you got, you got two young kids now, right? Um, you know, me and my family, we, we moved to, to Houston from South Carolina about three years ago. Like, that was hard enough, right? And, and like, that's not a big deal at all. Like, I'm going to still drive and see the family. Like, my kids are living in Houston. Houston's awesome. That's great. But like, even that, that was difficult. But here you guys are, two young kids moving literally like as far away on the planet as you could possibly be. What is it, like an 18, 20-hour flight or something crazy? It was 50 hours to get there this last okay, week. So that, with I, layovers. Yeah, I don't even yeah. comprehend. 50 hours to get <laughs> yeah. there. So, I mean, you're literally as far away as you could possibly be, and like nothing against Papua New Guinea, but my assumption is that like the opportunities for your children that they have growing up in Papua New Guinea won't quite look like the opportunities they would have if they're growing up and being raised like here in Houston, Texas. So, like, why in the world say yes? If I'm you guys, I'm thinking, hey, there's a need there. That's great. I'm going to pray for them. I'm going to, you know, give them some money so other people can go and worry about that. Like, what in the world compels you guys to make these sacrifices and say, yes, we will go. We will be on the ground. Yeah, so it's funny because when we first started out um, as a married couple preparing to go overseas together for the first time, a lot of people said that. And I was like, to be honest, it doesn't really feel that much like a sacrifice. Like, we're newly married. This feels like an adventure. We're just doing what God has asked us to do. But now, well, also, being there and being so directly involved with getting people's scripture in people's hands for the first time, it's really rewarding to feel like this small job that I'm doing with my hands is getting people scripture. And like that felt like a reward in itself. That was a motivator in itself. But I feel like my perspective has changed a lot since having kids. And now I'm really starting to understand the weight of that sacrifice and what it's like to miss out on my kids being with their family or um, big family events and um, opportunities and accessibility that you have here in America. But I think that um, one of the, the big things that keeps us going is the relationships that we have with the people there and our community there. And um, the tiny little piece of the picture that we have of what um, John was talking about in Re Revelation, where um, you, people of every tribe, tongue, and nation are coming together to worship him, like we get a tiny little picture of that diversity where we are, and that is beautiful to us, and that's kind of what keeps us going. But I think if you boil it all down, um, 
Like we have our jobs that we go to and we serve in, and it's not really that different from people here other than maybe some miles and <laughs> lack of grocery stores. But um, really, like Papua New Guinea is where God has asked us to put our roots down, and that's the community that he's asked us to serve in. And so we're just doing our best, um, even though it involves a lot of sacrifice, to say yes to what he's asked us to do. That's awesome. Amen. Well, hey, just on, on behalf of Garden Oaks, I just want to say thank you for your guys' faithfulness. And again, I, it's an inspiration for me personally to see you taking personal ownership of what Jesus says, may your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You guys are saying, hey, we need to live this out. So thank you for that example and encouragement. We want to pray over you guys as a church. Hey, one thing real quick, church, I want to let you know about. This is, this is so exciting. Um, starting this year as a church family, we're going to be partnering with and financially supporting Sam and Jessica. Amen. And so what that means is that when you give here at Garden Oaks, all of that doesn't stay here for ministry. It does, some of it does stay here to help with ministry here, but some of that is going to be going to them to helping translate Bibles, to get the gospel to people in Papua New Guinea. So those of you who give, thank you for your generosity, and you are going to be giving to them this year. So we are super excited about that. And then just want to let you know, after the service, Sam and Jessica, they're going to be at a table in the back. Um, they would love to meet you. They would love to say, hey, um, I'll just let you know that in addition to us supporting them, they are still raising support. They're trying to get back to Papua New Guinea as quickly as they can. Um, they need to raise some more financial support in order to be able to go back. So if you would like to speak to them about you know, what that looks like and any needs and how you could personally be part of that, they would love to talk to you. But whether you're interested in that or not, there's some little cards there on your pews. Sam, I'm not smart enough. What the heck are those things? Can you just like <laughs> tell us what those are real quick? So during our time in the States, uh, we came back to have a baby and usually I'm building something. And this time I said, well, you know what? I'm not going to, uh, I'm, I'm not going to waste all that time in the garage. I'm going to learn CAD and I'm going to learn th which, which is 3D design. So because um, you can apply that to um, CNC machines in our machine shop. And I got me a 3D printer. And so that was one of my first projects was making those little cards. So there, there's a, a piston in there, which a piston is a pretty normal mechanical device um, for internal combustion engines or compressors or lots of different things that pistons are used. And uh, that, that just kind of tells you a little bit about um, what, we, what we do to support Bible translation. And then our website's on there as well as our email. And I only put our email on there because our phone number changes every time we're in the States or in Papua New Guinea. So best way to reach us is uh, one of those emails, just our first and last name at wycliffe.org. Uh, so that's what those are. Yeah, so take one of those with you and um, put it on your desk at work. If you're like me and ADD as you're like sitting there, like <laughs> putting off what you should be doing for work and doing that, let that be a reminder um, of them and to pray for them. Um, you know, again, if you want to speak to them about partnering with them further, you can. Even if you're not interested in that, I know that they would covet your prayers and be praying for them. And there's some other little cards there at the table back there you can grab and stick it on your fridge as a reminder to be praying over them in the coming days and weeks and months and years as they prepare to head back to Papua New Guinea. But hey, real quick, we're going to pray over them as a church family. But once again, would you just give them a hand and just say thank you for their faithfulness in serving the kingdom?